The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Get ready, Ohio. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is coming to the Buckeye State. And to kick things off, you can get started with $100 in free bets as an early sign-up bonus. Plus, when you sign up today with promo code OHIOFD, you'll be all set when FanDuel goes live in Ohio. Then you can bet on all your favorite teams in all your favorite sports with $100 in free bets. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Ohio, this is your chance to get in on the action. Join today with promo code OHIOFD. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. 21 or older and present in Ohio. Bonus issued in non-withdrawable free bets that expire seven days after FanDuel accepts its first real money sports wager in Ohio. one Unique user identity verification required. Offer ends on the go-live date. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Hi, folks. Welcome to another episode of Film Study. This is Ken McCusick. Have a great discussion tonight because we get to talk about the Ravens' defense against the Carolina Panthers on Sunday, and they certainly were very dominant. Uh, joining me here to talk about it is Jake. Jake, you know him well from Baltimore Beatdown fame. Jake, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Ken. Thanks for having me on here, man. I appreciate it. How do you pronounce your last name, just so I do it properly? Uh, nice and simple. It's just Luke. That is simple. Wow, yeah. that's a that's a good deal. Appreciate it. You're, you're, uh, uh, where people can talk football with you? Uh, so you can find us at the Baltimore Beatdown podcast for the most part, which is on uh, all platforms on YouTube as well. You can find our writing at BaltimoreBeatdown.com and you can uh, check me out on Twitter at Jake Luke and that's spelled L-O-U-Q-U-E. Okay, uh, appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. We need to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Liquid Death, the water that will murder your thirst. Uh, they come in uh, aluminum uh, tall boys and if you're a green streak at all exists in you. I'd urge you to try that product in that form because those cans are recyclable at value to the recycler, which means everything. If you have plastic, it's going to end up in a landfill. Um, and the, the flavors are also terrific. You'll stay for that. Uh, nice lime seltzer flavors that I think you'll like. But anyway, please give that product a try. They've been very good to us. Well, lots of things to unpack in this game, but let's start with the topic that's on everybody's mind, which is the quick whistles. In this game, three different times uh, involved in this. We can have a brief discussion about each one, but the Bradley Bozeman snap infraction, I'm using air quotes on that, the uh, Andrews out of bounds play, and the Humphrey uh, fumble return TD that wasn't. Uh, Where would you like to start? I'm down to start wherever. I think uh, the the one that really kind of caught my eye there was the, the fumble recovery that wasn't. So I guess we can just go right there. Sure. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, <laughs> uh, pass right under pressure. Uh, and who was the receiver there? I think it was Shy Smith. Shy Smith, yep. Yeah. And so he turned around. It was very well covered, by the way, on Peters on the play. So, so it was, a you know, kind of Mayfield was a little bit fortunate, a little bit, a couple times in those fourth quarters, there weren't more turnovers, I thought. And anyway, this one was collected in by Shy Smith, despite good coverage. And Peters immediately started to pry the football, eventually got his hand to the end of the football, pried it loose, came out on the ground um, emphatically. I think it was the linesman on that side because it was fairly close to the line of scrimmage, uh, ruled him down and whistled so. And so the ball, which was neatly collected by Humphrey and run into the end zone uh, slowly, (laughs) did not count. 
Uh, you know, one of those interesting plays because just last week of that Saints game, we endured the office of the officiating that comes on air. You know, it's a Dean Blandino in this game, but I forget who it was in the in the last game on the Amazon Prime broadcast. You, you remember them coming on 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 uh, on and what they said. I don't think it's Pereira that does the Amazon. I know he does Fox, uh, but they, they, it just feels like they've got experts at, at every network yeah. now, and uh, none of them really seem to work, know how to work their way through this uh, this Russian novel that is the NFL rulebook. <laughs> yes, that's a good way to put it. It is quite a tome. Uh, but anyway, the, the, uh, uh, the guy who did come on last week said, you know, I just love the way the officials just held on to the whistle there. You can always fix it later as long as you don't blow that whistle. Well, what do they do? They blow the whistle and now they can't fix it later. And, you know, after having to endure that on the only touchdown of the game for the Saints, one that was a fluke, I think Peters was probably right about the foot being out of bounds. We just couldn't see it on the camera angles that were given. Uh, but it was a case where, you know, the Ravens certainly got burnt by uh, that interpretation of it last week. Now they get burned by the quick whistle version of it this week. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting how that works. And it, it reminded me actually of the 2018 uh, clincher against the Browns uh, in this very stadium where Lamar Jackson fumbles it away. They they whistle it dead. The Browns could have run that thing back for a, a touchdown there. And that really would have changed that game. So sometimes you're on the, the good side of them. Sometimes you're on the bad. It feels like the officiating was a little bit more uh, more on the bad side for them uh, at times yesterday. This was certainly one of them, but uh, just uh, always interesting. And to your point there about kind of just let the let things develop and you can always kind of call it back. We, you know what? We always forget the ones that that go in our favor, though, and that's a good point about that Jackson play. I'd forgotten it. it fumbled down near the goal line, put, recovered around the five, and they ran it back for what probably would have been a touchdown, but the play had been blown dead, yeah. And they, they got possession right on that call after the fact, right? They left them right there at the five or the 25, one or the other. Yep, yeah, they gave it to them ultimately, yeah. but uh, yeah, they, they probably should have, had, should have had a touchdown there. Yeah. I, I You know, I love watching that game still to put me to sleep at night. It's the weirdest thing, but the, 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 I can w- watch Ali Foreman, the 2000 Ravens Titans playoff game and that 2018 game against the, against Cleveland. And they put me to sleep in like five minutes. And it's the funny it's, th- that's interesting. You're, you're kind of jacking your adrenaline up there as a little bit, as you go to sleep. I feel like if I was thinking back on games like that, I would be uh, maybe, maybe a little bit more in that moment and uh, a little bit more fired up, but uh, that's, yeah. that's, that's kind of cool. Yeah, you kind of still get upset about these things in the moment, kind of maybe. But one thing about that, it's the last drive that I always watch that puts me to bed in five minutes anyway. But if I start watching it, uh, you know, they have those two long uh, times where they were they had challenges on that drive. And I, they weren't even challenges. I think they were, they were replay reviews initiated from the booth on catches. And both of them went in Cleveland's way. And they were, you know, moving the ball downfield to get the ball on Ravens territory. But I, ball almost never gets to the 50-yard line by the time I'm asleep anyway. So my yeah, own special, absolutely. special thing. Let's talk about the Bozeman snap a little bit, because that was one where it uh, didn't have any of the characteristics of a false start, as I understand the rule. Yeah, I didn't even like understand it very much in the stadium as to what happened, like when it occurred. I was in the south end zone, I believe. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's uh, the, the whistle went. The flag went up and it's like, what happened here? You, you, you assume it's some sort of procedural penalty, something going on along the line. They call I guess, like you mentioned, the snap infraction, and uh, yeah, a little, a little bit baffling. I mentioned kind of the uh, the litigious nature of the NFL rulebook. That's one that uh, I, you know, I, I don't really like have the tip of my tongue too often. And this was a, kind of a, a rare sight. Yeah, it's a, it's it was a weird one, but he didn't. There, there's four specific cases, and and none of them occurred where you either lift the ball off the ground or you rotate the ball from end to end were two of the big ones. And you are allowed to rotate the ball through the center and try and get the laces properly aligned with your fingers and hands. Uh, so, so that's, that's a lot, but you just can't rotate the ball over the end. Uh, and you can't take both hands off the ball once you start touching it. Kind of like chess, I guess, or if you, if you have to touch a piece and you have to move it kind of thing, but none of those things happen. Bozeman knew out, you know, by rote exactly what he was doing in terms of correctly snapping a football until he actually had to snap the football, which of course we saw a few times in Baltimore. And the ball kind of just rolled out of his hand instead of being flipped up to the to the uh quarterback normally. And it should have just, in in my opinion, been an aborted fumble at that point. Yeah, I could definitely see that argument. And uh it uh I almost like I know it would have benefited them, but I almost want there to be less, uh, less sort of iterations of things that can happen with the refs and just kind of like less interpretation on their part. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's uh, th- that was an interesting one for sure. 
All right. And then the Andrews out of bounds play, same same basic deal with the Saints from last week of, of a guy that, you know, why do you have to blow the whistle there? You know it can't be changed under those, those circumstances. Make them force Andrews out of bounds. It's not a player safety issue. Not really on the sideline like that. If you don't blow the whistle, then, you know, the tackle's going to be fine. So I didn't get that one either. And it, what that one at least was of, of small value in the end. In fact, none of these ended up really killing the Ravens or anything. They just all went against the Ravens. Um, but uh, but an interesting one in terms of, of it being so similar to what happened against the Saints last week. Yeah, this was one where it, it kind of makes me think on something that Belichick says a lot, that everything should be reviewable. And the fact that, and I'm sitting there, you know, freezing my butt off in the stadium. They, they spend however many minutes reviewing that thing. All of a sudden for Jerome Boger to come out and say, oh, well, that actually wasn't reviewable. And <laughs> you get to keep your time out. And it's like, oh, well, that's great, Jerome. We just sat there for three minutes in the freezing cold while you reviewed this thing just to realize that it's actually not reviewable. And we're just going to pretend that Mark Andrews stepped out of bounds, even though we all know that he didn't. It's just, you know, it, it, it kind of speaks to what we've been talking about here. But just another frustrating moment with this crew. That's a that's a great point there. Jerome Boger may have some personal health liability there for the people in the stadium in terms of of keeping them out in the cold longer. Bad look for Boger and his entire crew throughout this game in terms of what they really knew about the rules and you know blowing the whistle quickly. It's it's hard for me to believe that they won't face some um punitive measures not the right word, but some negative review from the league or the the, the NFL officiating group uh that reviews them and eventually decides on whether or not to retain these these individuals. Uh, but there could be individual uh, problems. For instance, the linesman who, caught, who blew the play dead on the right side of the field, that could be a problem. Uh, but either way, I think that that uh, this game doesn't go completely unrecognized in terms of, of Boger's crew's future. Yeah, some form of, of accountability would be nice here. I think whether it's like an annual re- review or maybe a biannual thing where it's just you take a look at hit rate as far as penalties that are accurate or whatever it might be and just kind of actually hold some guys accountable because Boger actually made the joke on our podcast the other night. It feels like the Ravens are uh, maybe they made a deal with the devil back in 2012 when he didn't throw the flag on Jimmy Smith in the end zone there, uh, which you know, huh. was obviously a little ticky tacky, but, and it could have gone either way, but the Ravens benefited from that. And it just feels like every time that they get him now, it just, it feels like it turns into this kind of sideshow with him. Yeah, I'm I'm impressed. You guys had Boger as a as a guest on the podcast. Uh, no, we didn't. But it, it uh, I was just kind of making the joke that it it feels it. like you know it, it just sort of feels like things have been a, been a little bit tough with him ever since then. Very good. Well, anyway, that's it's certainly another one that that uh, we needed to go the the Ravens way. Uh, you mentioned you were at the game. One of the things I noticed at the game was that defensive players were sitting there patting down the turf as if there was a problem with it. It looked like it was between the hashes. Uh, it was like slightly to my right. So maybe the 30 yard line, I'm going to say this, this was happening on, it's not, there is no open end of the stadium. So there's no way to, to really, to easily tell us, but as you enter the United entrance, it'd be to your right from, if you, as you enter gate a, mm-hmm. um, I, w- w- you'd be a section you, you, you're in. So we were in the, I, I guess you would call it the South end zone. It's the one that faces out towards the beltway. Uh, and so we were kind of underneath the second deck we were in i I believe 140 might have been the section ultimately so 140 so it was actually it was towards your end of the stadium okay that that it occurred and i'm not saying it didn't happen other places either because i noticed at least twice players doing this and they played a game there navy and notre dame played on 11 12 in the stadium and and it looks to me like they might have been loose sod or you know holes maybe that didn't get quite foot up or soft spots and whatnot but they were like continually stamping on it trying to affect something and i i couldn't really figure out what but I'm, I'm i'm trying to understand if anybody's asked the players about this or has anybody else has heard news about it no not to my knowledge and i i saw the notes in your in your write-up that you sent me initially and i actually didn't know what you were talking about so to hear you kind of bring it up a little bit i'm almost curious like what do you think the ultimate effect of that was on the game I, I I couldn't tell you what the effect was on the game. I I don't like the fact that you know defensive linemen are worrying about the turf being solid that they're going to stand on. I I I just personally don't like that. And you know, Ravens obviously have a significant lower body injury history on their team that we would prefer not to have repeated. So you know, having that field in top shape means you know might mean to me don't play high school games on it. Don't play college games on it if you can avoid it. And I know that the, the Ravens don't have 
I don't believe the ultimate decision-making power to keep games from being played on there. But to the degree they could they could do do a little arm twisting, it would really be nice if they didn't, you know, do it for a you know the small payoff of the game. I understand the Ravens get maybe between two and three hundred thousand dollars maybe for for a game being played there. Um, I you know if it's that kind of a payoff, it's not worth it in terms of the injury risk to players. I mean, you talk about you know who might be gone for uh, for how many weeks. It, it doesn't take much time at the vet minimum salary to lose two hundred or three hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, especially with the reputation that I think they've earned and that they have pride in as far as tip-top facilities and yeah. things of that nature. So, Yeah, no, that's, that's a good point. Yeah, that's, an, that's another area of loss. Uh, no matter what happened, I don't think either of these were a case of turf because we kind of saw the impact of these injuries. kind of makes you feel a little bit better that they're impact injuries as opposed to non-impact injuries. Uh, Stanley and Hamilton hurt in this game. I don't know that I am completely up to date on where they are, but Stanley actually got rolled into by Lamar in his ankle that has had the multiple surgeries. Hamilton got kind of got legged whipped by Roquan Smith in what looked like the knee or lower thigh to me. Yeah, and you had Stanley's comments after the game to Jackson, who said in his post-game press conference that Stanley said, quote, I'm good. So it's interesting with Stanley because the last couple of years, it seems like if anyone's going to know what's going on with Ronnie Stanley, it is Ronnie Stanley and only Ronnie Stanley. So I kind of take his word for that a little bit to say that, okay, I'm good. It's just precautionary. You can pull me out. Hamilton. I'm very curious to hear about. Uh, it feels like, I mean, it feels like if something catastrophic were to have happened, we probably would have already heard it by now. We're recording here on a Monday night. So, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully that that uh, portends well for them. And uh, I guess we'll see, Ultimately, what the test results are going to show, it sounds like things aren't too serious based on Harbaugh's presser uh, comments from today, I believe. So, yeah, it'll be uh, it'll be kind of critical to see what happens with him, because I think he's really come on here of late. How do you guys read between the lines? We've never talked about this before, but how do you guys read between the lines of Harbaugh commentary on injuries? It's interesting. It feels to me like, and I, I kind of take pride in being able to pin John down a little bit with some of this stuff. It feels like he comes into the year. And he's all ready to sort of be open with the media about this kind of stuff. And, you know, this, that and the other happens. Then all of a sudden he starts to shut things down a little bit. Maybe he gets a little more cryptic throughout the year. So I don't know. It feels like frustrations just kind of mount with him. And he sort of starts to shut the media down in that regard. He's not like bad with the media or surly or anything like a Belichick is. But there are certain uh, pressure points and uh, sensitivities. I think the Brashad Perriman situation really was a breaking point for him in that regard. And Kind of been dealing with that ever since. But I think listening to his comments on Hamilton, I think he seemed a little bit more playing it not as close to the vest as he usually does. I I, I would agree. And and I think you've characterized this well in terms of there are certain things that, that build up the pressure on him overseas. And that 2015 season with Brashad was was a mess for many other players than Brashad Perriman. But Brashad Perriman was probably the worst. But the, the other... Um, uh, you know, component of it is that almost anything he says about an injury is the best case scenario. So I look at it as the first platform for negotiations of what that injury, what's actually going to happen with that injury. And, uh, you know, he, he doesn't seem to be too worried. Uh, you know, I'd say, okay, I hope that that means it's not four weeks for, for Ronnie Stanley or for, or for Hamilton. And obviously in either case, you know, you wouldn't want that. You wouldn't want either of them to be out for four weeks. I mean, they're two of the Ravens' best players. You could really argue right now that other than Lamar, they're the best player on offense and the best player on defense. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I probably wouldn't that Hamilton is, but he's awfully important right now in terms of of uh, how the Ravens are using him. Uh, it just it, it, if you had to over under this right now, or if maybe there's just a, a, a an agreement that you could have. What's your number of weeks out for each of those players that you'd say, great, I take it in 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 those two cases. I would say I would set the over-under at two for Stanley. I would take the under. I would set it at three for Hamilton, and I would probably take the over. Okay. And if if I could have two and three, I'd take it in a heartbeat. If that that's, was, what I, that's what I was thinking. Maybe push with Hamilton, but that's not really in the spirit of the game, I guess. Yeah, that's fine. No, you did good. Uh, <laughs> uh, always fun to talk about this. Um, you know, in terms of the blueprint for this game, I think it actually... You know, it is an ugly game. It's a hard game to watch. The Ravens didn't get their 10-point lead until very late, as they, they always seem to have. But this is really a good blueprint for the stretch drive. They played a bad team. They're certainly going to play a lot of bad teams. They out-snapped them by 10, 12, 66 to 54, I think, for the game. So, so you know, that's certainly good. 
Um, they played great defensive football, and I think that's going to be the hallmark of the Ravens down the stretch. I think we're going to see very much like a 2018 stretch drive. So Lamar's rookie year, the way he came in, the rushing attack completely took over. Passing probably becomes less important down the stretch. It certainly seems like we might be headed there. And the defense completely takes over uh, on a game-by-game basis. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's the blueprint the Ravens can most easily apply down the stretch here. I'm not sure they'll know who they are when they enter the playoffs, but I think that that's, that's a blueprint. By now, you're probably noticing that there's strange tall boys of beer in the bottled water section of your local stores. Well, that's because it's not beer. It's actually mountain spring water from the Alps, and it's called Liquid Death. Why is it called Liquid Death? Well, because it will brutally murder your thirst, and they're infinitely recyclable tall boy cans help bring death to plastic bottles. They also donate 10% of their profits from every can sold to help kill plastic pollution. By now, you probably know how much I love Liquid Death. Well, every week I tell you about a different way I've used Liquid Death to mess with people. This week it was taking a cooler full of Liquid Death to the softball game. Because as our team chugged down Liquid Death, our play improved while the other team drank other stuff and maybe got a little sloppy out on the field. So take Liquid Death, the other team has no clue what you're doing. Or take it to work. We've talked about that many times. Drag it around to your friends at school. Maybe the carpool lane. Maybe we'll talk about the carpool lane next week. Just take Liquid Death. Enjoy it. It's ice cold water. You're going to have a great time and fun. Go get Liquid Death at your local Harris Teeter or 7-Eleven or find Liquid Death retailers near you with their store locator tool at liquiddeath.com slash film study that's liquiddeath.com slash film study yeah and i think it's a thing where you have to play within your strengths or your lack of strengths in certain areas they're just they're not talented enough at wide receiver right now i don't think i think it was an issue even with bateman coming into the season and now with him going down that's uh, just made them even worse there uh and so ultimately yeah it's kind of about knowing who you are and leaning into that it's about bringing up a charlie kohler and seeing what he's got it's about mixing likely in a little bit more uh it's about not maybe force feeding it to Andrews a little bit. This offense has looked pretty good the last couple weeks when he hasn't been out there and then he gets back in there again and things look out of sync a little bit. So I think that's a little bit part of it. I think it's involving the right guys, maybe getting some more touches for Duvernay, keep getting Demarcus Robinson involved. I don't know what's going to happen with Deshaun Jackson, but ultimately, yeah, this is not going to be a dominant uh, explosive through the air type offense. We'll see if they can even be better than middle of the road as far as their passing offense goes. But uh, yeah, you've kind of put yourself in a position where you're just going to have to lean into who you are here, I think. Yeah, I, I, that's a great point. I, I love the way you put that. And, you know, we're, talk, we're supposed to talk about the defense today, but we always stray back and forth between the two. So so the the question I'd have for you is this. We had a game, I, I, I can't remember now, if it was the Saints game or the previous game, I think it was the Saints game, where Lamar completed passes to 10 or 11 different receivers. And then we go to this game where it basically was 100% of the offense running through Demarcus Robinson. Are you, do you, do you, uh, like the rotating hot hand better to see if you can develop some receivers to see if you can find that guy like Isaiah Likely who can really help you on a one-game basis or Demarcus Robinson against some specific circumstance? Or do you like some of maybe play scripting to intentionally distribute the ball that might or might not be optimizing but is still keeping everybody involved in getting touches? I like the latter and I like it with a game plan that's going to be able to set you up to do so in the right spots in the game. The Buccaneers game, they go out and they throw it 30 times or whatever it was in the first half. They just had no success. And it's like, what are we doing here? This is a tough watch. I tweeted about Greg Roman maybe losing his job the next day. And ultimately, (laughs) uh, I had a little bit of egg on my face, but I was okay with it. And they came out and they said that, you know what? That was our kind of, that was our approach was to go in there, spread them out, throw the ball, tire them out. Then in the second half, we're going to get into the run game. We're going to get guys mixed into the passing game a little bit here and we're going to spread the ball around and ultimately that worked in their favor. So I think just have a plan, stick to it and have some, just be a little bit more deliberate. I think Uh, I I just don't like the, some of the stuff that we've seen from this offense where things feel a little bit hectic and kind of hair on fire and, you know, Jackson's spiking footballs after the, after the snap comes in a little bit later or something. It's just like, I I just want to see something a little bit more calmed down a little bit more of a deliberacy. If that's a word with this offense. Yeah. That's that Jackson getting upset about things after the play is a area of potential growth for Lamar. And I, you know, it's not Lamar has still some areas for growth and he is the North star 
of addressing his own growth issues during the offseason. There is nobody better, probably in the NFL, but certainly on the Ravens, in terms of trying to improve himself during the offseason. And uh, I, 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 don't, I don't know if his quarterback guru will take it upon him you know, to work with him on this, but it's the kind of thing you see the relationship that he has with Urban and you know how they're you know immediately together on the bench. Maybe there's somebody who can get him to just calm down a little bit, or maybe you got to let him feel. I sometimes I start cursing during a during a football game, and 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 Maureen goes, "Can you just calm down a little bit?" And and I have to say, "Can you just let me feel, honey? Because I need a feel here." <laughs> and uh, you know maybe that's just what Lamar needs. Uh, but it shouldn't come out as punting the football because if there already hadn't been a delay of game called there, there might have been another delay of game called on that play. Yeah, certainly. And I think you make a good point there about just letting it out a little bit. I think there's something to that. I think it's therapeutic. I think it, uh, it makes him seem to be a little bit more of a leader to me. You know, we've mm-hmm. talked about on our podcast how in 2019, that was a lot of fun. But man, it just seemed like a bunch of kids out there sometimes just with the big trus and like all the, you know, just Mark Ingram having fun. And you love all that stuff. It was great in the moment. But now it seems like there's a little bit more seriousness. It seems like there's a little bit more to use the word again, accountability with Jackson you know, he's yelling at Ricard and he's yelling at Stanley. And then after the play, he's patting them on the ass and, you know, things are okay ultimately. And uh, it's just, it is what it is. And uh, I think it is good to see some, some accountability. You don't want too much. You don't want him to kind of get out over his skis, but uh, I think it is good to see some of that ultimately. One of the things is accountability usually comes up with failure. So you don't want too much accountability from that perspective. Um, I have loved what I'm seeing from the defense in terms of accountability here these last few weeks, a completely different system with Roquan here. And and it's Patrick Queen actually been playing pretty well before Roquan arrived. And I've been a big critic of Patrick Queen's, but you move when it's appropriate to move. And he has played at even a higher level in these two Roquan games. In particular, just attacking the hole defensively uh, in this game in terms of the uh, 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 run plays. And being a better form tackler than he's ever been. So I wonder even if Roquan spent a little bit of time with him on that because clearly he's one of the best tacklers in the league. Yeah, and it does feel like there is some uh, some effects of each other rubbing off on one another. I think Queen tweeted something to that effect right before we got going here that uh, they, they kind of opened things up for each other a little bit. And uh, it's great to see, and it is great to see fundamentally sound play from queen. Cause I think that was never, the question was never athleticism. It was never smart. He's a very smart kid. Uh, very, I think self-effacing almost to, uh, almost to a little bit too much of a degree. It's like, Hey man, stop thinking so much. Maybe just go out and like, let it rip a little bit and be an athlete. And, uh, ultimately I think he's, he's arrived at a, maybe a little bit of a, a, a nadir here where he is kind of being that athlete, that hair on fire, shooting gaps, getting into the backfield, making big plays while also retaining that kind of cerebral player, fundamentally sound, that kind of thing. And I think Smith is a big part of that. Yeah. Uh, Smith certainly has a lot of those qualities. He, he understands assignment football and where he needs to be. Um, you know, the Ravens have the right players right now, particularly against these teams they're going to face, to let Queen run around and make plays. And, you know, he can, he can be the, he, I'm really talking old man football, but Isaiah Robertson of the Rams in the 1970s was a guy who had a reputation as being a guy who just ran all over the football field making plays, but if he didn't have the Rams front four in front of him, he wouldn't be able to do it. And Ray Lewis, to a certain degree, had that reputation until they broke up the 4-3 defense in Baltimore by you know, basically taking the quote-unquote fatties from in front of him who were eating all the blocks and allowing him to run the sideline to sideline making tackles um, away from him. Ray was initially not real happy with going to a 3-4 defense. But, it, it, you know, it, it, after that, as Ray Lewis continued to be the great player he was, won a defensive player of the year in a 3-4 defense after winning it in the 4-3, you realized it didn't really matter all that much in his case uh, what was going on. I, I, uh, I just hope that, you know, if Roquan is gone next year, that we don't see some regression from Patrick Queen because this, this is a time where he's a chance really to step forward into a leadership role on this team and be more than he's been. He's he'll he'll be he'll be the guy everyone wants to congratulate after another one of these sacks, but I just I don't want to see him regress to being a, an indifferent block shedder, a lack of form tackler, not using his arms again, um not getting the hole as quickly as he is right now. Uh you know, losing focus and not covering a screen pass when he should be. And more of those responsibilities will be his if the Ravens obviously can't sign Roquan Smith. Yeah, and I think to Queen's credit, I think we have seen more good from bad uh, from him this oh, yeah. year. And I think uh, that's been really good to see. And I think a big part of that has to be Mike McDonald, who 
was his linebackers coach and who he has a great relationship. And Patrick came on our podcast and he actually talked about that, how he didn't throw shade at Wink or anything necessarily, but he, it just felt like he was going to be put into a system where he was going to be, if not valued more than used a little bit more properly. And it does seem like McDonald has really kind of started to unlock the best qualities out of him. Well, very good to hear. And, uh, and certainly we've, we've been appreciating his play these last, uh, you know, since early in the season anyway. Uh, the front five depth is one of my really big takeaways from this game in terms of what the Ravens now have. And so when I talk front five depth, uh, uh, it is the outside linebacker position and the defensive line. Defensive line is all healthy again. Being even one game without Calais Campbell, we kind of got a sense that you know it, it was dif- it's difficult for the Ravens without Calais. Um, they d- still don't have Pierce, so they don't have a pure nose tackle, but they have a set of players now that is very deep for most NFL defensive line teams who are suffering injuries and don't have nearly the depth the Ravens have on that defensive line, uh, the interior defensive line I'm talking about. And then they, they are peaking right now in terms of outside linebacker depth, which has, I think, a number of positive implications. Yeah, I think so. And I think it really shows through in a player like JPP doing what he did uh, in the second half there, where I believe he got a sack and then he had the interception. Uh, That's huge to get an impact play from a guy who you signed off the street. You usually don't sign those guys to make impact plays. It's just, can you set the edge a little bit? Can you maybe get us a sack here and there? He's been much more an impact player than I think I was expecting. And he's a guy that I certainly look at and, uh, you know, marvel at a little bit. And then also you mentioned Calais Campbell, who it just feels like he gets at least one sack every other game. And I almost like forget that he's there sometimes as a, you know, we talked about, I'm not really like breaking down the trenches as much um, week to week as uh, some other people uh, like yourself. And, you know, it just, he, he just appears out of nowhere and just makes a big play and it puts a smile on my face uh, pretty much every week at this point. You know, this game actually was one where I probably wouldn't have had an, enough Calais notes to do this, but I do this section in my in my article every week called Star Treatment. And I aggregate all the notes I've got, plus and minus, because I don't want to screen for, you know, take out the take out the bad notes and put in only the good ones. So I, I'll, I'll put in the negative notes there also. And Campbell typically has 10, 11 notes per, per week. And if I didn't like want to, you know, mix it up a little bit, he'd probably be in there just about every week for his, you know, dominant play. Because he makes so many uh, plays where he's helping another player to make a play by making a little penetration, blowing up a run play, somebody else gets a tackle and they look great. And, and, you know, people who are watching football and, and, and look at it, they know what, what's, what's really happening, but uh, it's, it's maybe not as visible. It certainly doesn't show up in the stat sheet for him. Uh, but he's, he's still an incredibly dominant player at, at his age, which I don't even know what it is anymore, but it's almost like, you know, watching Phil Necro pitch in the 1980s is I don't, I'm not even sure it matters. Yeah. It's almost like uh I think I made this comparison right when they traded for him back in 2020. It felt like they had a lot of shields along the defensive line, right? Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned the traditional nose tackle with a Michael mm-hmm. Pierce. You think back to a Brandon Williams. Calais Campbell is kind of the sword to their shield mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, he, he can play a lot of different positions. You can put him almost anywhere there, but he's, he's a guy who can't even move out to the edge if that's where you need him to play and, uh, and is a hell of a player, but certainly gives you, that penetrating offense that I think you're probably referring to in terms of being a sword and a pass rusher. Okay. Uh, the, the other point I've made it a couple of times on the show. I don't mind repeating myself on this particular one. The outside linebacker group is now back to playing in a position where their play can be optimized. Meaning uh, Adafi Owe was out of necessity playing a ton of snaps and all on the same side. And I thought it was really hurting his production earlier this year. Um, fortunately now he's got a, a very reduced snap workload, which I think is positive in multiple ways. I think, you know, pass rushers in general want to, want to, um, be out there for less snaps. I think the more you use Adafi Owe to help your pass rush, the better you're going to be. And, you know, he played 22 snaps, I think in this game, maybe it was 22 pass rush snaps. I got to get that right here. Um, so I, I don't count penalties in this. So it's going to be a little bit different from how other people have it, but yeah, he only played 22 total snaps in this game. Uh, which is which is actually kind of low for an outside linebacker to play about forty percent of the snaps, uh, but he played in in my opinion quite well. He had five pressures as I counted. I did look on PFF; they had, they had him for only two, which shows a little bit of the difference in methodology we used. But uh, I thought he did a really good job of impeding the cone, backing up defenders into the quarterback's throwing cone in this game. And uh, he's one of the players that's really benefited, I think, from the fact that Bowser is back and taking his regular spot. 
Yeah. And it's really good to see. I mean, he's a guy who you really do want to get more sack production out of having been a first round pick and having been the, the freak athlete that you picked him for, he didn't have the sack production in college. So the idea was he's going to come in and be the freak athlete, be the uh, bitch kitty as Mike Pettin would say back in the day and uh, be able to get around the edge with, uh, with impunity and uh, you know, dip his, dip his shoulder and do all the kinds of freak athlete stuff. And uh, ultimately it didn't, uh, or it hasn't quite worked out to that point yet, but yeah, man, he's, he's still a very good player and uh, all the, uh, all the pressure stats and things of that nature, the, uh, the, the more advanced metrics definitely point to that. So while it would be nice to see the sacks production come in, I think just kind of creating pressure and creating havoc is going to be a good thing for a defense when you have a lot of other guys who can finish plays, who can sack the quarterback. You're seeing that from Roquan Smith a little bit. You're seeing it from Queen a little bit. Um, you know, I think that's just obviously a really key element. Yeah, that is a fantastic point, um, is that the Ravens need finishers, but they also need starters. And Owe has typically been a starter in terms of, of getting pressure. Um, I, I, I had a section in my article, so I'm not going to repeat the whole thing here, but I, I would encourage people to go read it if you would on filmstudybaltimore.com. Um, all four sacks and all three turnovers in this ball game were at least two-man plays. So there wasn't any Aaron Donald throws your center aside like a rag doll and, and uh, goes, you know, goes and gets your quarterback all by himself. There wasn't any of that. Every single one of those sacks was somebody got there with the initial pressure, moved Mayfield off the spot or grabbed, you know, some part of his jersey or something and somebody else came and cleaned it up. And the, you know, the, the turnovers, if you look at them, you know, the first one was, you know, Marcus Peters prying the ball away and Humphrey picking it up. He doesn't get any more two-man than that. Uh, and then the, you have uh, uh, the interceptions. The interception by Humphrey was off a of pressure by Oway uh, where, you know, Mayfield throws up a flotation device and Humphrey knows just how to play the thing. So, it, you know, definitely a two-man operation. And then the last interception was another obvious two-one where Williams gets up against a double team. Sorry, not Williams, Washington. Gets up against a double team, puts his hands up and deflects the ball right to Pierre Ball, who's very alertly catches that football. And I, I not a not an easy catch. Uh, just it's all two man operation. The Ravens are playing great complementary defense right now. Yeah, it kind of feels like an NBA thing where you have a guy who's uh, setting up the uh, setting up the slam dunk guy or setting up the three point guy a little bit. It's uh, yeah, having one guy in position to start the play, like you mentioned, and another guy in position to close it. Uh, going back to Owe for a second, I really love the fact that he's back getting to rush against naked tackles now because it's a very different thing. When, you, when you're on the tight end side, you might get chipped. There might be two tight ends over there. You might get a running back in addition. It might be a tackle and a tight end. You know, you just got multiple things can happen to you on that side. You've got coverage responsibilities. You've got jam responsibilities at the line of scrimmage to try and disrupt the route of that tight end, even if you're going to rush the passer after that. So, the, the, his total number of coverage snaps is not really a good reflection of how much that was hurting him in terms of opportunity as a pass rusher. And so I, I'm I, him going against naked tackles exactly underscores his value or, or it should should make apparent his value if I want to try and find the right word for that. He is more athletic than any offensive tackle he will ever face. Even the most athletic off- offensive tackle who ever played the game, and I don't know who that is, but you know, is is not nearly the athlete that Adafi Owe is. So almost any tackle he faces is going to overreact to his first move, which should be the basis of Owe becoming a truly great pass rusher. Is his two-stage moves, Eurostep, spin move, anything inside out, anything outside in, for that matter. Um those all of those kind of two-step pass rush plan moves should be his bread and butter. And he really hasn't had time to work on that, I don't believe, playing at the same linebacker spot. And so I think I would project very big things for him for the rest of this year. Yeah, I think certainly. And then it has to be a function of guys getting healthy. And it, it feels like a, a game of musical chairs with this team and with this defense sometimes where it's like, oh, well, one guy gets hurt. And then another guy's like, oh, we'll just wait till this guy gets back. And then that guy gets back and another guy gets hurt. And it just feels like kind of, shuffling deck chairs a little bit uh, to an extent, but man, they're starting to peak right now with that position, aren't they? You got Bowser getting back into the mix. You got Ojabo, who's going to be uh, coming in here pretty soon. And uh, Justin Houston finding the fountain of youth seems to have helped in that uh, regard as well. So yeah, great, great job of just, you know, minimizing Houston, Houston snaps. And this is all about the optimization process. I mean, Bowser taking over that Sam snaps, those Sam snaps back 
is enormously important to getting all the rush side linebackers their play on the proper snaps, to getting Pierre Paul in there on rundowns when he can help you as an edge setter and use his, his size. He doesn't have to be just a pass rusher, but he can help you there too. So uh, they've also gotten some three outside linebackers on the field at once on, on passing downs that I think has been a, a, a positive for them as well. So uh, anyway, loving what I'm seeing from the front five right now. Uh yeah, one, th- one other thing I want to mention for this game, because I thought I, there's, a, there's a comment from Collinsworth, a term he used once. I think he applied it to, to Baker Mayfield, but it might have been Jared Goff, but it definitely one of those two, and you can kind of see it in both of them, that they can be often reduced to throwing fadeaway jumpers, meaning they're always under pressure, always on the move, always throwing up some kind of a high-arcing lobby ball that doesn't look very good. And boy, did they have Mayfield like that in the second half of this game. Yeah, it, uh, it's interesting. I would use this in a more positive fashion with Flacco back in the day sometimes where he'd get, the, he'd get on the back foot and just kind of pop one up to Bolden or Pitta. And actually, more often than not, it would work out for him a little bit. But I know exactly what you're talking about. And man, we did see a couple of those from Baker yesterday, didn't we? Where uh, it just feels like the pocket is collapsing either from the interior or from the outside. And he's just reduced to, yep, on the back foot, toss one up. And it feels like uh, it's either going out of bounds or doing something or hopefully it's not going to be an intentional grounding for him. Yeah. I, I thought, I thought he could, yeah. I mean, he threw one to the right side where Clark was the only one anywhere within range that I thought probably should have been intentional grounding, but it also could have been an interception by Clark. If it happened to land in bounds, it, it wasn't too far out of bounds. And then he threw the one up to Marshall that was in double coverage and stone is in front of the play, rarely in front of the bracket, you know, set up in front of the bracket, but, he, but it looked like either stone or might've been, might've been Humphrey behind. I don't think it was though. I think it might've been Stevens behind actually at that point in the game, Marshall made the catch, you know, it happened to be, you know, probably thrown to a pretty good location to start with would have been my guess. But even with, with, with that, I would have expect things to go right. He, he really benefited from some of that. In fact, he threw to Marshall six times for 76 yards. All the other times he dropped back, put together the resulted in a passer sack he had 3.0 yards per um, dropback. On the on the throws to Marshall, he had over 12 yards per dropback. So 12.7, I guess, 76 over six. So it's, uh, it's, it's one of these things that, that it, it, boy, it, it, this game was bad for Mayfield, but it could have been worse. No, I agree. I think Marshall actually bailed him out on the one to uh, Peters. I think it was definitely a pretty good catch. Uh, and he, he kind of beat Peters one-on-one there. So that was a pretty nice job by him. And, uh, yeah, this game, it, it just was kind of a brutal watch in that regard. And Marshall was really the only one making plays downfield. He actually had Stevens make a play one-on-one against him down the red zone, which was really nice to see. Uh, really, really good to see that from Brandon Stevens. I think we we do want to see some more more good play out of him there, uh, especially when Peters is struggling a little bit, when his future is maybe in question. Uh, it would be nice if Brandon Stevens could really step up and turn into more of a player. And uh, that was a good play. But yeah, ultimately, back to the original point, a, a rough outing for Mayfield, and he just could not find anything deep. I think the only success he really had was when he would get out of the pocket and maybe just create something with a little bit of a dump-off pass to Shai Smith, LaVisca Chenault, TJ Moore, whoever it was. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and even that, the Ravens had such good downhill tackling in this good game. A lot of it with Hamilton on the field. You know, they had, I want to say... Yeah, the defensive wins on passes of five, five, and ten yards. So when the ten yard play was a third and seventeen. So it was a it was a tackle by Queen. It's a good tackle. And you know, it brought up fourth and seven, and then they missed that. So that so that was a good one. And then they had two end, like a third and nine, third and eight drive consecutively end with five yard passes where Hamilton made the tackle both times. So if you're wondering why Hamilton got a really high grade from PFF or from me in this game, uh, that's the reason. So he he had a he had a Truly outstanding game there. Uh, Ravens completely shut down the run in this game. Uh, 36 carries for 36 yards on 17 carries. So just 2.1 per carry. Um, They came into this game with a fantastic run streak. And I saw it flash up on the screen uh, briefly, but I think it was five consecutive games. It averaged 160 yards. So sounds like 800 yards basically over the last five games with seven touchdowns. And they get obviously no touchdowns and 36 yards against the Ravens. Yeah. It sounded like they were really keying on that too. If you listen to the pregame comments, I mean, how often do you hear John Harbaugh really breaking things down to the point where he's talking about Mm -hmm. duo and inside zone and gap and things like that. So yeah, it it felt like they kind of knew what was going to be the bread and butter of the Panthers offense and they were prepared to stop it. Foreman actually did. I thought he played admirably. He had some nice runs up the middle there, but uh, ultimately, yeah, they were, they were keyed on that and they were successful against it. 
Yeah, part of that is probably the wind that the that the game is going to be so tough on passers anyway that you can jam the line of scrimmage with more players and and you know get get Queen and Roquan in the backfield more often as penetrators and and take chances with your linemen even on on the run. Uh, it, it, that was uh, you made a point here that I wanted to respond to though, and what was it? Yes, it's about Harbaugh and his interview style. Here's an, here's another one here where I'm reading between the lines a little bit, but. I do, I, the reason I think we don't hear that from Harbaugh as much is that Harbaugh really doesn't want to talk about it at all when he's talking about the Ravens, but he doesn't mind talking about another team's you know strategies. And so you hear him go through this role, and he did it twice this week. The first time he did it, he you know I, I noticed it too. Is it was the run game, and he's mentioning all the different concepts and you know all the different ways in which they can you know get an effective run start. And sometimes they'll bounce it outside, they'll run zone, they'll run gap, they'll, you know. He had, he had all the the key offensive Greg Roman buzzwords in in that uh, speech. He really obviously knew what he's talking about. And we would expect him to because, hey, he's the head coach of the Baltimore Ravens. But he talked about their offense a second time, or maybe it was their defense. I forget which side. But it had a lot of the same similar kind of a heavy schematic tone to it and 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 verbiage that he clearly knows people recognize the first interview. And he's almost like he's playing off that. Uh, I, I don't know how you guys interpreted that, but I, I, first of all, impressed always that he can go through and, and explain things in that way. It doesn't take us for granted in terms of what we know about football to start with, that we might understand some of his terminology as well. But how, how did you interpret that? I interpret it as, yeah, he's flexing his muscles a little bit, I think. And I think he might realize the fact that maybe he's a little bit underappreciated in some respects by people I think outside of this fan base and also within it who look at the special teams background and there's maybe a little bit of a stigma attached to that with them. And they look at the, the you know, where he gets up in front of the cameras and he's firing brimstone and he's, you know, he, he's screaming the the good speech and all that stuff. And they just look at him as a motivator and a leader of men. And like, he's not, Oh, he's the CEO type. He doesn't know X's and O's like guys, if he's an NFL coach, he's going to know the X's and O's a little bit. And I think uh, maybe that stems a little bit from uh you know, being a little bit, uh, being a little bit perturbed by comments like that from people uh, throughout the year. So it's nice to see him flex those muscles a little bit, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I like that a lot. And, uh, and it is good to see him, uh, you know, make that clear to people that he, that he really understands that he, by the way, he sometimes talks about that in terms of people who really know X's and O's would tell you, um, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's like he's not he's he's acting like he's an out of body experience that he's watching somebody else who does know X's and O's telling somebody else. But but you know he really probably considers himself and correctly so clearly in that group of people who who understand what's what's going on. But I I really pre- I appreciate it on multiple levels anyway that that uh, John is who he is. I also really appreciate the fact that he has a little bit of Belichickish information guarding in him. I don't know about you, but I I it's as a fan. I, he's got no need at all to tell me the truth. As as an analyst, there is no need at all to tell me the truth. I'm going to draw my own conclusions anyway. You know, frankly, from what I see, from 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 what I hear from uh, you know doctors, sometimes um, I, I I'm not going to draw my conclusion with what John Harbaugh says about injuries. So it's best if he gives away as little as possible. Yeah, and I think it it makes it so that when they do speak on that stuff, it gives it even more import to the point where. If you get into a draft season and you get to the uh, liars luncheon, yes, you can go out there and you can say certain things and you can maybe, oh, he's saying this about this player. Well, that means something. And then all of a sudden, you know, it's Eric DaCosta saying, oh, well, we really like our receivers. And then he goes out and drafts, you know, two in the first three rounds or whatever it is, and then picking even more of them. So yeah, I think it does uh, not that they're like being intentionally duplicitous or anything, but I think picking your spots like that does give you a little bit more capital with the media. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a, that's a really good point. Well, let's move on a little bit. We'll talk about packages a little bit. Uh, you know, we had, I'll, I'll go through some numbers with the packages in about a minute, but uh, there are two really big factors here. And and the, the first one, and this is just an enormous concession to who the Ravens are right now. Kyle Hamilton came out at slot cornerback and he played slot cornerback. Every single nickel package they had until the point he got hurt. Um, and, and what that basically is saying, that included a lot of 11 personnel and, and the, the, the Carolina mixes in a lot of 12 uh, with that. But it was, a, it was a lot of 11 personnel in the group. And Hamilton's still out there playing slot corner, even against a wide receiver. And 
to, to me, we've, we've talked about this a little bit on the show before, but to me, that's a pretty clear indictment of where Pepe Williams and Brandon Stevens are right now, that they're not on the field when a third receiver is on the field um, and Hamilton is on the field, not just when a tight end is on the field, but also against those 11 personnel packages where you have oftentimes a small, you know, shy Smith or somebody who's a, you know, a quicker receiver in that slot uh, who Hamilton probably would have difficulty uh, following on any kind of uh, longer route. Yeah. And it's interesting that that's his main position because like watching it with a little bit of a, a different set of eyes than you or some other like trained eyes, I, I wouldn't have even been able to say what his position would be because it just feels like every time he's out there, it's a dump off into the flat or it's a, a running back coming up uh, on the uh, right or left side. And then there he is with that big frame and those long arms and he's just making a tackle and he is just stopping the play dead in its tracks. And uh, I think it'll be interesting to see if he can kind of be, Come this elite pass defender that uh, I think some people think he can be, and I certainly uh, believe that he still can be. But but for right now, his role does kind of seem to be that tight end eliminator to some respects, and then a guy that's just going to come down and just be an absolute fire hydrant against short plays. I mean, he's just been unstoppable in that regard, and uh, it's been really fun to watch. Yeah, great great tackling. You put all the pieces together, and it's just so sad about the injury. Obviously, you hate to lose a player in his rookie year when you the development stakes are highest right now. Uh, you know, in terms of what's going on, no matter what, what, I mean, this is why, what made the David Ajabo pick so damn risky is you might lose the year developmentally if he's not really ready to go. Now it appears he he will be, and I'm excited about that, but really needs some trial by fire to figure out what they have here. I mean, it's important for him. It's important for the Ravens. And it, you, you hear a term that goes along with this sometimes in baseball, you talk about bringing up a prospect to allow him to fail forward. Oftentimes it means bringing up a guy to AAA because they don't mess around with bringing people up in the major leagues. They, it's it's too much loss of con, of team control. But it, but it, you bring him up a, a, to a to a higher level, you know, early. Get him two weeks, three weeks of of uh, of play at that at that double A AA or AAA, whatever the next highest level would be for the guy. And you allow him to fail at that level so he can fail forward, figure out what he's doing wrong so he can come back the next year and do well. And that's what's important developmentally for Ajabo. Get, get, get in that clubhouse, learn some things from the other pass rushers there. Justin Houston will help anybody, it looks like, in terms of, I mean, certainly he does when it's on video. Maybe he turns into a different guy when the video's not on, but I, I don't believe that. I, I believe he'll, you know, he'll teach Ajabo whatever David wants to learn about muscle memory techniques about you know what's what's a good first move to make on on your opponent how to develop a pass rush plan maybe how to eat right maybe how to hit the weights right you know it just there's there's plenty of for all the age that's on this team you know Jason Pierre Paul and Campbell and 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 Houston and you know even even players like Clark in the defensive backfield who were who were a little bit older you got at Roquan Smith certainly even though he's young you got a lot of great examples in terms of how to learn how to play this game that are there for the taking on this tear. Yeah. And that's all big stuff that you mentioned there. And I think he's got all the talent and I think he's got all the smarts. So yeah, having guys there that he's not going to be afraid to go to. And I don't think he's going to be either. I think Houston is one of these really nice guys. I've met Tyus Bowser. He's a really nice guy. I think all these guys are going to be willing to help bring him along and like, Hey, where do I park my car? Like, yeah. where do I go in the locker room? How do I talk to these trainers? How do I talk to coaches? What do I do in the meeting rooms? How do I take notes? Like, that's all stuff that it's really, really important. But like learning that on top of what you have to learn on top of the defensive scheme, on top of getting physically right, it's just all so, so, so much. And it's going to be hard coming back from injury. But having a support system that's going to be able to help him do that is going to be really big. And to your point, I think these are the right guys for the job. Yeah, the Ravens had, uh, they've had a couple guys now. They had uh, Harry Swain, who was the right tackle for them, who had that, I, I don't know what his thing is. It's like, it's not a player development. That's not exactly what it's called, but it's like a personal development. He helps young guys who are away from home now for the first time, in some cases, who maybe had a support system in college that was very close for them. Learn how to get a checking account. Learn how to pay their bills on time. I mean, learn how to set up some savings now that they have money. You know, the, the, you know basic kind of things that you or I might take for granted in terms of, of, or that we had to learn, let's say, at one time when we were first picking out cafeteria benefits at a company that we might work for. Uh, what, whatever the case might be, uh, you know, Harry Swain did that for a while. I think Jamil McLean is the guy now. I don't even know if McLean is still with the team right now. but but He is. Okay, so he's the guy now. Have you guys talked to him too? No, we haven't. Uh, I'd love to. Though. I know he's, he's he's a fun guy. Yeah, yeah, he'd be a good interview. Uh, anyway, uh, 
trying to remember where we were in this right now. So we're talking about packages. That's right. So the Hamilton thing with with him playing at slot corners is absolutely huge because it's a, it's a direct effacing of who the Ravens are and who they have. And the cornerback situation is very, very, very tight. And it's even tight in terms of if you put Brandon Stevens out there at slot corner, which I think would be the wrong place for him. They actually put him out at right cornerback and move Humphrey into the slot. Then you risk another injury to one of those cornerbacks who could help you on the outside if he's needed. And uh, Hamilton gives you a lot as a pass rusher, a lot as a run defender. We saw both those a lot in terms of short zone area coverage skills. And I've questioned whether the Ravens really have anybody who can cover, um, you know, a truly quick but not fast um, uh, whip route player out of the slot. I don't think, you know, Cole Beasley or Welker or Edelman or those kind of guys, I, I, don't, I don't think they have anybody who can cover them anyway. So you may as well have Hamilton on the field who can do a bunch of other things well for you. Yeah, and it's not going to be Hamilton after uh, after some of the the foibles we saw in the summer where he's going you know viral for all the wrong reasons, losing that type of rep to uh, whatever undrafted player it was, Raleigh Weber, whoever it was. And uh, none of that stuff is really actually important, but uh, it does, I think, speak to his skill set a little bit. And to your point, it's one where he's not going to be covering those types of players, but uh, it's another thing. Lean into your identity. And uh, I think he's uh, he kind of fits what their identity is right now. All right, so let's see. One other package thing to note is that the Ravens really have moved to being a committed nickel team. And this has not happened in a long time, folks, but they didn't play a single snap with six-plus defensive backs in this game. Uh, so they, had two, they had two inside linebackers on the field for every play. Roquan and, and Queen played the entire game. Uh, and that is a very unusual circumstance. Uh, unusual. That's not quite true. There are a few NFL teams. Buffalo does it because... They, they happen to have a good coverage guy at the weak side linebacker spot that they want to keep on the field. But I, I'd say it's pretty unusual to put yourself in a position where you can't rotate in to play dime defense. And that would be a place that would be a more natural spot probably for Hamilton. Uh, Hamilton also could get some reps on the back end if if Clark would come up into the box, which he's he's been a great dime back in, in years past, 2019 in particular. But to, to me, very strange that... Um, the Ravens have committed to it entirely, but again, I think they're playing to their strengths right now. They know what they know what they are. They know who they have, and they just don't have enough strength in that defensive backfield to put six def- decent defensive backs on the field. And they're going with what they got. Yeah, lean into it, <laughs> like I was just yeah. saying. Yeah. Uh, all right. Otherwise, if you want to know the average uh, package. Uh, what they did in each package, it's all in the uh, the article. Uh, and uh, they played some base defense. They were effective in that. Uh, primarily played the big nickel. They were very effective in. They were very effective on Hamilton's snaps. Let's just put it that way. Uh, and uh, and a little bit less effective after he left the game. I guess the Saints, it was absurd. It was something like uh, six yards per play better with Hamilton in the game when with him out of the game. It was 3.4 and 9.4. So I'm not saying... Hamilton is making them six yards better. You know, obviously there's been a randomization there that is, that has created some uh, additional difference there, but, uh, but it's interesting that, that uh, it was that extreme. Well, I'll tell you what we'll do. Uh, let's make sure we uh, get your uh, Twitter handle out one more time, Jake. Yeah, it's uh, at Jake Luke. That's L-O-U-Q-U-E. You can also follow our podcast where we tweet out uh, all sorts of stuff, updates, memes, things of that nature at podcast beatdown. We'll be back uh, later today with the second part of this podcast. Hope you guys will turn into that. And uh, if you, anybody out there wants to be on a film study short, hit me up. DMs are always open on Twitter. You know what I'm looking for? Nice short topic, 20, 25 minutes, because nothing is 20, 25 minutes this, this, with me. I know we have to talk game for that to get this done in 45, but make sure it's something you're passionate about. Doesn't have to be super technical, but if it is, I love that kind of stuff too. Uh, anyway, hit me up. DMs are always open on Twitter. Jake, thanks again for coming on. Thanks a ton, Ken. A ton of fun, man. And we'll talk to you next time on Film Study. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. 
Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.